Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, frontline workers throughout the state are scheduled to receive their first doses of the Moderna vaccine. Public health officials say the general public could start to receive inoculations as early as spring. Coming up in a moment, we'll hear how a rural health care system is planning to vaccinate employees and patients. Also, later, I'll speak with Grady Dr. Kimberly Manning, who's also the Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. Now, she talks to me about the decision to enroll in a vaccine clinical trial. I knew that COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And I knew that whatever data that we got from a vaccine, it would really help if we had, you know, people who were most impacted enrolled in the study so we can be a part of the data. And and I'm in a unique position in that I work at Grady Hospital and I'm on the faculty at Emory. So some of the investigators are people that I know personally. And I had a lot of places where I could ask questions and do my homework first. So so I never even, I, I saw it as an honor And I saw it as a privilege because I knew that I would try my best to use my voice to help my community feel more comfortable. That conversation later in the program. But first, in related COVID-19 news, newly confirmed cases in Georgia are surging at levels even higher than this past summer. At the time of this broadcast, 546,859 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. 40,952 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,247 are considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording all of this information back in March, 9,719 deaths have been confirmed. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. On to election news. The days are winding down for early in-person voting for the Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs. Now, polling locations are open today and tomorrow. However, as for New Year's Eve, check with your county elections officials. And of course, the big day, Tuesday, January 5th, a week from today, yes, is election day. Now for some sports news. Yay! A panda, yes, a panda, who lives at Zoo Atlanta has predicted the winner of the upcoming Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. Yang Yang, a 23-year-old giant male panda, actually one of four giant pandas living at three zoos nationwide, Yang Yang chose between two boxes, one painted with the logo of the Georgia Bulldogs, the other with the Cincinnati Bearcats logo. And Yang Yang, in all his wisdom, predicted this to be the winner. Third down try for the dogs in the game. Daniels in the pocket, plenty of time, pulls it down, now throws it, caught by Cook over the middle. He's got a running room, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, end zone. Yeah, he got there as he's being hit, crossing the goal line. James Cook with the touchdown. The Georgia Bulldogs. Grace Walker's Georgia Bulldogs 
will face off against the Bearcats at Mercedes-Benz Stadium at noon on New Year's Day. And you can always follow Yang Yang and his many adventures online through Zoo Atlanta's PandaCam. It's riveting. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. And as we mentioned earlier, some frontline health workers throughout the state have already started receiving their first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, we know there are two separate vaccines that have been approved by the FDA, one by Moderna and one by Pfizer-BioNTech. But as reported, supplies of the vaccine, well, they are still limited. And no one knows when there will be enough supply for everyone in the entire country to be vaccinated. And there are other concerns that some parts of the state may have to wait longer than others, particularly in rural areas. Take a listen. Nothing to diminish the accomplishment of Moderna and Pfizer to finish these vaccines in record time. But it really is only half the battle and the other half is the distribution. And there are a number of characteristics about these vaccines that make them additionally challenging. So one is that there are two doses that are either three or four weeks apart. Um, So you've got to get both of those doses. The other is that both of these vaccines have to be kept really, really cold um, in order for them to work. Uh, This is more of an issue for Pfizer, which has to be even colder than the Moderna one. And then the other factor is the shipment size. So the Pfizer vaccine, in addition to having to stay at this very low temperature, is going to come in these huge boxes of at minimum a thousand doses versus only a hundred doses for Moderna. So that's part of what makes the Pfizer vaccine in particular so tricky when you think about having to get through a thousand doses in just five days versus the Moderna vaccine where you can have up to 30 days to get through 100 doses. Now, that was part of a conversation I had with ProPublica reporter Isaac Arnsdorf back in November as they did a report on how states had planned to distribute the vaccine. Well, joining me now to talk about how rural health systems will have their own challenges is John Sparks. He's the director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta. He also chairs the Georgia Charitable Care Network Advisory Council. Mr. Sparks, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be here today. We know that so much is already made about the plight of rural health systems now comes in terms of this pandemic. What concerns do you have just overall about how these vaccines will be distributed in these rural communities? Well, availability is probably the biggest issue um, in Valdosta where we are. It's a larger community with greater resources than our outlying counties that are around us, and especially in Southwest and Southeast Georgia. And, um, and I know in our own situation, we had to jump through a lot of hoops and we were thankful for those hoops with public health to, to gain access to become a, a dispenser of the vaccine. But when you've got communities that are smaller with less resources and less contact, uh, then you know that, that can be a concern. But the, the good part about it is that public health is located in all the counties in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so they are, are connected, but um, we'll, we'll see how fast the vaccine gets out to all these outlying areas. 
Well, let me ask you this, because obviously you're aware of, like everyone else, that the, the newly confirmed cases continue to rise here in Georgia. How is your region faring through all of this? Well, at one point we were a, a red county, a hot spot, and but things have eased off. Things, are, you know, we still have positive cases in our own clinic. We we're a community um, testing site, along with our local hospital, and um, we're testing people every week that are positive for for COVID. Uh, it's it's not gone away. It won't go away. Um, there's a, a reticence to be vaccinated that we're beginning to uncover and um, which is surprising somewhat because uh, it is a uh, in a sense a flu vaccine that's you know it's not ones that have been around forever but it's still in the same genre and it's a little surprising that so many people are reticent to be vaccinated hmm. for our folks who may not be familiar with the partnership for health now you're an urgent care clinic but you all serve primarily uninsured or underinsured patients correct Correct. We, we serve only the uninsured uh, here in, in South Georgia and the surrounding counties. And most of our patients are, uh, are very sick people. A lot of our new patients are discharged patients from the hospital who are uninsured, have no family doctor, and we become their family doctor for them. Uh, we're open seven days a week. We have four full-time providers, four part-time providers. Um, we see, see a lot of sick people. And, uh, you know, we do do the urgent care, but most of what we do is take care of very sick people. Mr. Sparks, during this pandemic, how have you all been able to work through that? I mean, I imagine because you have to keep not only the patients or the folks that are coming in, but your frontline health care workers as well. How were you all impacted by the pandemic? Did you have to reduce your hours or, or reduce the number of patients that you all could see? Well, we, we um, had a a fortunate turn of events that occurred right around the time that the pandemic um, became an item in our state that we had to deal with, that we were already um, implementing telehealth in, in our clinic. And, and we had been at it for probably about a year. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when the pandemic hit full bore, we ended up closing our clinic to only telehealth visits for, for a period of several months as we tried to figure out um, how to protect our healthcare workers and, and our employees and, and, and at what level would we open back up to patients as they came back in the door again. And we were thankful that we were already involved in, in um, established in telehealth and we began to implement that at a much greater level. And in fact, a lot of our visits became telephone visits, which a lot of people don't realize is a part of telehealth. Most of us, we think of it as being just video only, mm -hmm. and um, but telephone, um, you know, especially follow-up visits is not a bad idea. Also, Mr. Sparks, when you think of some of the connectivity issues in rural communities, that the telehealth by phone might have been a better option anyway. Correct. Uh, these are ongoing issues I know the state legislature has been trying to deal with is, is to boost our um, uh, capacity in the, the rural communities for connectivity. But let's talk about your employees, your healthcare workers. To your knowledge now, have you, has anyone received vaccine? Are you all in line to receive, your employees in line to receive the vaccine? If so, when and how will all this begin? Well, we, uh, as we worked with public health to become a 
dispenser of the vaccine within our community. There were all sorts of forms and training that we had to go through. And we, uh, our operations director and our chief clinical officer went through all those different trainings. And of course, we filled out our forms to get the Moderna vaccine because it was a lot easier for us to store it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we were just uh, waiting and biding our time, wondering when it was going to show up. And lo and behold, last week, Moderna showed up at our door uh, with 100 um, doses of the vaccine. And uh, right before Christmas, <laughs> what a Christmas present. Absolutely. How were you all able to store it then? Right now, of course, the, the initial doses of vaccine are for our employees and mm -hmm. volunteers. And of course, that vaccine will be used within the first 30 days. And so we were able to store that in our own refrigeration units that we already have, that we keep sample medication and diabetic medication, that type of thing. We have data loggers attached to those uh, devices. So we know what temperature it stays at all day long, all night long, that type of thing. And, uh, and so we have ordered the certified refrigeration freezing units that mm -hmm. Moderna requires that we should receive in a couple of weeks. And that way we'll be able to keep long-term doses of Moderna as we begin to vaccinate our patient population next. So you and Valdosta, will, is that where the refrigeration will primarily be housed or will you, will you be able to, to distribute those units to other parts of the, of the state here? And the refrigeration unit, the vaccine refrigeration unit, will be in our clinic. Okay. It's, it's not a large unit because those vials are not very big, so it doesn't take up a, a, a tremendous amount of space. But we'll be able to keep it frozen um, while we are working through our patient population. And for right now, uh, of course, we're doing our employees first and volunteers. The next phase will be begin with our patients. And then beyond that, it, uh, we should be, in, you know, in partnership with the hospital to do more community-type vaccinating. The voice you hear is John Sparks, director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta and chair of the Georgia Charitable Care Network Advisory Council. And we're talking about how they plan to distribute the two COVID-19 vaccines, not only to their employees, but also patients. How much do you anticipate you'll need, Mr. Sparks, when you talk about your patient population, because that's ongoing. Right. And initially, to get them all vaccinated, we, we would need probably around 6,000 doses of the vaccine because it, it's two, two doses for full vaccination. Mm -hmm. We serve about 3,000 uninsured patients right now, and so we have to vaccinate them twice. So that's 6,000 doses. Have you been assured that you all will receive these vaccines? In a time as much of, as anybody has been assured. I mean, we, we've got the first 100 doses for um, our staff and volunteers. Mm -hmm. So that's encouraging that we're going to receive the, the doses as it comes along, especially uh, what was encouraging to me is, you know, you know, when you think about it, we're a small nonprofit medical clinic that serves the uninsured. Mm -hmm. Who are we in the state of Georgia in the big scheme? We're nothing but a tiny little tadpole but yet we have received the vaccine. So that tells me that things are moving faster and better than maybe most of us thought they would, mm -hmm. which is encouraging. Mrs. Sparks, did you get the vaccine? Yes, I did. I was one of the first to receive it. Can I ask I, how you feeling? 
I want to I want to respect your privacy, but oh no, no. Listen, I'm an open book. I work in a nonprofit. Everything we do is a <laughs> is for public record. Um, yes, I took the the vaccine. I had no reticence about taking it. You know, of course, you you wonder, mm-hmm. um, but and did I have any side effects? Yes, I did. Um, I felt a little malaise the next couple of days, uh, but it wasn't flu-like in a sense. Mm-hmm. It was just a little little dip in the way I felt. And today I'm doing great. And how important is it? Do you think that not only someone like you, but your healthcare workers who have been receiving the vaccine, perhaps if they could tell their story to your patients, because there's still a lot of folks who might be a little bit on the uh, hesitation side, you know, not knowing, but you all are some of the first in the state. So uh, are you optimistic that that will help maybe, you know, clear things up for some folks who might be just a little bit, you know, uneasy? Uh, And we've had to deal with that within our own employee population. We've got employees that are reticent to get you know, vaccinated. Obviously, we were not. We're not going to make them get vaccinated. That is you're not. Choice. No, we are not going to require they become vaccinated. Why? We, we have. Um, we, we, in our situation, we feel like that is a private decision that each individual has to make. Mm-hmm. And at this point, there's no compulsion. Um, we uh, we highly recommend it. We share our stories. Um, that, that it's safe, but I understand the reticence, especially when uh, when you have a vaccine coming to market quicker than anything ever has before. It makes you wonder, but uh, I was not concerned about it. To me, the risk, especially, you know, I'm a little older person and um, and those those risks are always there and it was worth the risk to do it. And also to set, set a standard for our employees, you know, that as a leader, uh, that's my job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it's, and it's been fine, no side effects, um, and I hope that it continues this way as we move forward. And Mr. Sparks, other than ordering the refrigeration units, is there any other cost to the Partnership Health Center for you all down there in Valdosta? No, there's absolutely zero cost to us. And I know, and I know, as someone who probably has to look at the books every now and then, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, just about every day. <laughs> you have to keep you have to keep a, a tight lid on that. You know, as a non every nonprofit has to really um, watch the income and outgo, and we're we're grateful that it's been made available to us and to our patient population. And you and I both know, uh, just months ago and early on with this pandemic and how hard hit areas like Albany were, and then also oh. that that amplified the plight of rural hospitals and clinics and the rural health system overall. Um, when you reflect now on the fact that this pandemic did highlight some of those issues, how hopeful are you now that there will be greater, not just attention, but resources, and, and whether it's with a new administration or with the state legislature, what have you, more will be given to rural health systems here? We're, we're very hopeful that more resources will come our way. Uh, we're very thankful for what we've received. As you know, we're part of the Georgia Charitable Care Network, which mm-hmm. is a network of free and charitable clinics across Georgia. In fact, it's the largest network besides Florida in the nation. And, um, and we serve many of the 1.4 million uninsured in, in Georgia. Um, we rec- recognize that we're not the only answer to the uninsured, but we're part of it, you know, along with other entities in the state. And in the state of Georgia, has begun to recognize our our good, the good that we do, 
and they provide a sales tax exemption. They provide a line item in the budget for our clinics. It's a competitive grant situation. They provide sovereign immunity for providers that see um, uh, patients that they don't charge for. Mm -hmm. and so there, there are a lot of good things going on. Surrounding states are doing the same thing. And so we're, we're hopeful that that help that we're already receiving grows over the next several years because the, the problems are not going away. They're only getting worse. And, mm -hmm. um, and we, we need help, frankly. You mentioned that number, 1.4 million Georgians who are uninsured. You all don't turn anyone away. No, no, we don't. Um, we, sir, as long as the, our, our eligibility requirements, you know, every clinic in the state, they have different ones. Ours are that you have to be 18 to 64, because if you're under 18, a lot of times you get access to Medicaid. Mm -hmm. over, over 64, you have Medicare, so we see what's in between. Um, earn, and we're pretty generous, uh, earn under 300% of the federal poverty guideline. Yeah. So even a uh, family of four that makes up to $70,000 a year that's uninsured can be seen in our clinic, you know, as long as they meet those eligibility requirements. And so we see a wide range of folks in our uh -huh. clinic. You yeah. know, our, our, the, we see the um, homeless. Of course, the, the home, we, we are a charity clinic in that we do have a small copay. Uh, it's not insurance, but we feel like that each of our patients needs to have some skin in the game, but it's affordable. Our fees are between 10 and $20 a visit. And so it's very affordable. We, we certainly make um, allowances for people in dire need who can't even afford that. Homeless people are free, mm -hmm. obviously in our clinic. And so we work with everybody to make sure they get access to care because that's why we exist is to provide access where there hasn't been any. And of course, also here in Georgia, the maternal mortality rate, which you and I both know was among the highest in the nation. Um, you all also provide resources and, and care. Well, we don't directly. You but don't? The, but the, the thing, the way that we work here is that we are, we have many, many partners in our community, especially the, the local regional hospital. Mm -hmm. And and for those populations that we don't serve what they're facing we're uh, like a, a resource center for them that we can get them in touch with the right folks and, mm -hmm. and especially public health and get them in the door there and get them to a specialist and we have a whole network of specialists that will see our patients at no charge and so we refer our patients out to specialists and uh, all over the state and so it's it's really a community effort mm -hmm. to serve these folks because one clinic cannot do it all you have limited resources, and so you have to make partnerships with those that can provide the things that you can't. Did you all treat patients who had contracted the virus, Mr. Sparks? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. have, you know, we, don't have, we haven't had a tremendous amount because we're a smaller piece of, piece of the pie here, mm -hmm. but um, we have patients who contracted the virus, and we keep track of them and follow them and stay in close contact with them, and we're, we're thankful that the vast majority have not been at have, have, the vast majority have not had to be hospitalized mm, and that's that, good that they can be treated at home and ride out the, the, the virus and come out the other side healthy well let's end our conversation with some optimism here as you as we all head into 2021 what is your outlook you think for this not just with the vaccine but overall this pandemic and what do you hope changes come out of all of this or in general 
public health policy? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful because so many things have come to light. There's been exposure to so many different problems in our, in our society, in our communities, in our cultures. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that people will embrace the changes that have had to happen and will come out the side of being healthier in the long term. A lot of people have realized that there are personal things that each person can do to be healthier, to wear a mask, to wash their hands. When before we never thought about these things. And I hope that these things continue. I hope that our uh, legislators, now that they're far more aware of what a pandemic can do uh, to the state, to the nation, to the world, that they'll be far more ready to loosen the pocketbooks, to invest in change, invest in healthcare, uh, and, and also do the right thing for our economy. It's such a balance. It's not one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. And I don't envy uh, the position they're in having to keep our economy afloat while keeping our people healthy. But I'm hopeful that, in, that people will rise to the occasion. We've seen it already communities supporting one another, helping one another. And I hope that that continues to where we look after each other. Well said. That's a good way to end today's program. John Sparks is director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta and chair of the Georgia Charitable Care Network Advisory Council. Mr. Sparks, first of all, thank you for all the work that you and your peers and everyone in the health center, what you all been doing, not only just during this time, but over the years. Thank you. And then thank you for taking the time to be part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week, more frontline workers throughout the state are receiving their very first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. At a press conference on Monday, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Tooming gave more details on the state's vaccine distribution plan. Still, despite this progress, public health officials say it will be a long road before the vaccine is widely available and they need to build public trust. Well, on today's special edition of the program, our focus is on Georgia and the vaccines. And we begin with Dr. Kimberly Manning, a professor of medicine and associate vice chair of diversity, equity and inclusion within the Department of Medicine at Emory University. And she also treats patients at Grady Memorial Hospital. And she also recently wrote about what motivated her to become an enrollee and a COVID-19 vaccine trial. Dr. Manning, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. Before we get into the vaccine, let, let's go back. Um, when all this started back in February, March of this year, when we really didn't know much about 
the coronavirus. Um, what, what were you thinking about? What were your concerns then? You know, I, I think that like many people um, that watch the news and pay attention to social media like Twitter, um, I was watching it with the interest of a medical professional, but not um, thinking about how it would impact my family and my community. And so I wasn't yet really afraid. I'm sure some of our um, public health and infectious disease colleagues were. Um, we definitely had inklings from some of our experts that this could become something bad. But I, I think I was naive to that. And I, and I really felt myself inside of my little, you know, insulated US bubble thinking that nothing would uh, really hit us in this way. I hate to say that um, like I was like a lot of Americans and fairly you know blindsided by just the actual impact. And I think obviously as a black American, um, I think like a lot of people, I was naive and didn't think that uh, this would impact me um, and my community in the way that it did, even as a healthcare professional. And I think just the added sort of sucker punch was how this has impacted the black community specifically. I mean, I think being a black American, I've heard about disparities, I know about disparities, but I think seeing it um, in relief this way, um, it's not something I've experienced in my career quite like this. Dr. Manning, can you take me to the first time you encountered a patient that had contracted the virus and what that was like? Or any yeah. individual for that matter. Yeah, uh, you know, because it's interesting. I, I, I have, um, I sort of feel like I have these, you know, two parallel worlds happening, right? So there's the world that I have as a physician where I'm at Grady and, you know, I remember us first learning how to don and doff our PPE. That's the fancy term we use to describe putting it on and taking it off. And, and I remember being really nervous and scared the first time I went to the bedside of a patient who was known for sure to have COVID. Um, and, and how sad I felt that I couldn't really connect with them because I was so afraid of touching something, doing the wrong thing, um, getting sick and how that might impact my family. And so I mostly remember feeling like I couldn't connect with the patient. But the other parallel piece is again, like as a black American, um, I started getting these text messages um, from people that I know. And you know, I'm the doctor in the family for a lot of people. And so, you know, it's mama is sick. Um, what do you think we should do about this? Daddy is sick. My brother is sick. I don't feel good. I can't breathe. Um, and, and this is like escalating people going to ICUs people, you know, and we are learning about it in real time. Um, so this really hit my village, um, in a way that it was not six degrees of separation. It wasn't just mm -hmm. me as a doctor. It was like no degrees of separation. It was every day I had this virtual list of people who look like me that I'm rounding on um, to check in on people's mamas and aunties and friends. And that was really, that's been really tough. Dr. Manning, did you lose anyone either in your immediate family or close friend or, or someone? I'm grateful that I have not lost anyone in my immediate family, um, but I, I do have a near peer um, who went to Tuskegee with me, who is my age, a mom, um, you know, isn't somebody who has, you know, a million health problems or anything. And, you know, she spent um, probably, you know, more than 30 days in an ICU. And, um, I, you know, as I was talking to my friends and my classmates about us trying to prepare to navigate for her to die. I mean, really, it was horrible. She made it through, mm -hmm. but she, you know, she's a long hauler and she's somebody who is feeling the impact and the 
um, you know, and, and all of the, the disabilities that came with being in an intensive care unit and having to, you know, not able to walk and talk and do anything for a long time. There were clots and lots of things that happened. And she's talked about this fairly openly. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, though I'm not saying her name, I just sure. want to be clear. Um, she would permit this, but I, I, I think that she is an example, I think, of of it really hitting home. This was on my Facebook feed, all my Tuskegee alumni groups. Um, and, and there are just a lot more people like that. Fortunately, has not been my immediate family. You are on as a health expert, but I, and you're not speaking for Grady Memorial Hospital, but I do want to ask you how you have been doing and from a mental health standpoint, and, mm-hmm. and your colleagues have talked about how you've been able to balance that, if you have been. We know this has taken a toll on folks like you all, the workers, the frontline health workers. I have to say that um, I have a very um, close-knit family. Um, my husband is not in uh, medicine, but uh, we talk a lot and we realize we, in, in the pandemic, we're like, wow, we're so glad we like each other. And so <laughs> I think I have a really great anchor of support um, in him and, and my two sons who are teenagers and who are great people. Um, in the hospital, you know, I think, you know, when you work in a safety net hospital, um, you know, to some degree, though, we're not necessarily built for a pandemic. We we are built for um, dealing with, you know, not enough divided by too much. Um, and you see a lot when you work in a place like Grady. This is my 20th year working at Grady. And and um, th- there's almost a part of me that feels like some 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 folks are almost built for a time such as this. And I think that's how I felt. I am absolutely inspired by the, you know, resilience of, of human beings. I mean, I've always seen that at Grady, but this is this is totally different. I see it in the most special ways. And and you know, I'm I'm really glad that the world has sort of shifted to appreciate that frontline is not the doctors putting on PPE only. You know, frontline are, you know, it was a lady who was singing on the ward on Christmas this day de- delivering breakfast trays and um, our environmental services team and the security officers. And we're just a family there. And, and, and so for myself, I have found great solace in that. Um, that being said, I certainly have seen the impact um, on mental health of many of my colleagues, my students, our trainees. Um, and that is a real thing. So I don't wish to trivialize it my personal experience so far, I, I've, I've been managing okay. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Kimberly Manning. She's a professor of medicine and associate vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. And she also treats patients at Grady Memorial Hospital. Before we get to the vaccine, you enrolled in a COVID-19 clinical trial. Right. What led to that decision? Uh, Well, you know, I I think for years, um, when you read academic papers and studies, one of the things that we often see is that uh, very few of the enrollees are black and or or reflect my patient population. And so there's often like this study, you say, oh, this is what the result was, but there were no black Americans in the the study. So how do we know? Um, And so I knew that COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting um, black and brown people. And I knew that um, whatever data that we got from a vaccine, it would really help if we had, you know, people who were most impacted enrolled in the study so we can be a part of the data. 
Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm in a unique position in that I work at Grady Hospital and I'm on the faculty at Emory. So some of the investigators are people that I know personally. And I had a lot of places where I could ask questions and do my homework first. Um, and it was convenient because my enrolling site was at Grady. Uh, so, so I never even, I, I saw it as an honor and I saw it as a privilege um, because I knew that I would try my best to use my voice to help my, um, my community feel more comfortable. And I thought, wow, how dope would it be if I was actually in the study mm -hmm. and I could talk to my folk, you know, about, hey, look, this is what it was like for me, but also still acknowledge, you know, how people feel, their fears, their valid concerns and, um, and trepidation and, and, and talk that thing out as somebody who had experienced it. For The Lancet, Dr. Manning, you wrote, this was an emotional decision. I'm gonna quote you here. Quote, I stepped out of the parking garage and made my way towards the building. Once I reached the ramp leading to the entrance, I froze. My feet felt glued to the asphalt and a few tears slid down my cheeks. You know, as we know, there were people who looked like us who were, had a lot to do with the medical investigation and the information that we have now who never had a choice. They just never had a choice. They never got consented. They were never asked. They were subjected to some really painful things. Um, and I just felt this sort of, um, I felt the weight of all of those people. A lot of them women, you know, um, especially as you think about, you know, obstetric and gynecologic mm -hmm. um, procedures and how we learned about those. Mm -hmm. And those were women like me, if I was born in a different time, um, that, that could have been me, that would have been me. You know, as I look at my face in the mirror and I see freckles and things that, you know, that they tell a story of, of, of ways that people like us were violated. You know, I would not have a freckle on my face where, where someone down the line not violated, right? And mm -hmm. so I felt all of that. And um, as I got there, I thought to myself, I'm carrying you in here with me and I'm going to ask these questions and I am going to get informed and then I will decide if I consent or if I refuse. So the history, which clearly, clearly details a mistrust and, and a mistrust that is valid. Mm -hmm. You turn that, you use that as a way possibly to empower, which it did empower you to make a decision that could ultimately result in saving lives of people that look like me and you. Is that a fair assessment? Right. I mean. It's a very fair assessment. I think that, you know, recognizing that while I have to respect history and I have to respect um, some some real things that, you know, a lot of my discussion is, you know, I'm a Tuskegee um, alum mm -hmm. and really taking the time to unpack that, look, stop pointing at Tuskegee as the reason why people don't want to, <laughs> to be a part of something. Um, there's a lot that happened before Tuskegee and after Tuskegee, plus Tuskegee is um, an illustrious, amazing institution. Mm -hmm. of education and so stop you know put some respect on my name you know what I mean um but um the other piece I think is but then there are all the people that I love they're the like security officers and they're my patients and there's Rose Scott and there are these folks who look like me that I'm like yo you know I get to I get to do something and be a part of something um that that in the past you know where for a different time, I wouldn't have been able to be a part of in this way with this level of knowledge. And I'm a medical doctor on top of that. So I can ask questions in a way um, that, you know, I think, I think help empower others. So you and some of your colleagues at Grady were among the first in the state to be vaccinated for COVID-19. 
Yeah. So a, a, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm, I'm an enrollee in the study. And so, um, you know, the, for many who had the, who had the vaccine after it had um, EUA and, and got and knew they got the vaccine, they're in a bit of a different position than me as an enrollee back in September, I was randomized, which means I was either given the vaccine or I was given a placebo. placebo. You, so you so don't know which I, one you got, do you? I got a shot and it's one or the other. <laughs> Now we'll say this, now that we've had um, um, emergency use authorization, um, those of us who were in the trial, I was in Moderna, um, are, are being unblinded, um, I believe this week. And uh, I'll find out if I what I got. Okay. Um, but, you know, um, obviously I've still been vigilant about mask use and everything, um, which we all need to be even after the vaccine until more of us get it. But it is an emotional thing to see. You talked about what role you could play personally as a healthcare provider, um, particularly in restoring trust, mm -hmm. um, not in the vaccine, but even in the, in the science and research and, and medical industry as, as a whole. Um, have you had conversations with people who were maybe a little bit on the, I don't know, Dr. Manning, but after your conversation, maybe they felt a little bit better? Yes, and I'm so encouraged. You know, here is the thing. One of the things I know for sure is that, you know, we we are a diverse people. I mean, all of our reasons for saying no or maybe or I'm not sure um, or yes are very different. And and so one of the things I'm finding is that um, I, I just keep drilling down when someone says no, I'm not doing it. I say why. A lot of folks, it's not the history piece. Maybe it's how fast the vaccine was developed. Maybe it's that they don't fully understand how the vaccine works. Mm -hmm. And so all I valid, mean, all valid concerns. All valid. Like some folks, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I don't think you're going to inject me with cooties. No, no, I don't think that. I just feel like I feel like this. But for, you know, historically, um, you know, those from from marginalized groups are often not given the opportunity to be individuals. You know, um, it's like the discussions we have about voting blocks, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, each individual person has their thing, their story. You might just like not like needles. You might be allergic to eggs. You might have an autoimmune disease. They're all these conversations that I'm finding are individual things. And so I am finding that I'm changing minds in a few ways. One um, is when I talk to people about their individual reasons. The other um, piece is helping people understand how an mRNA vaccine actually works and what it is. I've had a lot of fun discussing that with people. And then the last piece I think is recognizing that, you know, as much as we wanna not admit it, America is still extremely segregated um, and our communities are segregated. And if you open up your cell phone and you go through all your contacts, if you look like me, chances are the vast majority of your contacts are people who share your race. And if all of those folks who look like you and who go to Tuskegee Homecoming and the Delta Convention and all of the things you wanna do, if the vast majority of those folks do not feel um, confident um, in getting a vaccine, then it is possible that our community could be still masked and in and, and, and physical distancing while the rest of the world goes off to enjoy SEC football and live in their best lives. And that's a fear that I have, and I think it's resonating with some folks. So then from that note, let's talk about then the vaccine distribution process. And what concerns do you have in terms of that will be an equitable process and that inoculations will be accessible for all? I am terrified about that. Um, and, I, and, you know, Rose, I wish I could say that, you know, first of all, I'll be clear and say this is not my full expertise how they will distribute vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I do have fear that, um, you know, that th there will be only so much of it, right? And, you know, if, if let's say if they do, if it is decided to say, okay, we will go to um, those who are most vulnerable first. Um, and if individuals say no, I pass or not right now, which is another thing I'm hearing a lot of, it's just the not right now. Mm -hmm. And then they go to the next person. Um, what then happens if you change your mind and you're ready now, but it's not enough there? Mm -hmm. um, there, there. This is such a big conversation, vaccine distribution and what that will look like. Obviously, historically, um, people who are poor um, are often the last in line. And I think that it is a reasonable concern to have that um, you know, people who are poor or who um, historically are a part of America's lowest caste um, could be the ones um, on the outside looking in. But there are more of us at the table now too, you know, right? So a lot, a lot more of us have voice and um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think these things will happen without a fight. Looking ahead to 2021, what is your hope? As we enter a new year, and obviously the pandemic doesn't magically disappear, um, but what is your hope as we head into 2021 from so, a public health policy standpoint, too? Yeah, wow. um, I, I think that, um, you know, now more than ever, um, we are having more conversations about the science um, than we ever had before. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about um, larger groups of people having their own idea and understanding of the science behind what's happening. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, you know, what I, what I hope is that I hope that people who have influence, who are in leadership roles will be good stewards of their influence. And I'm gonna do everything I can and run out of breath um, trying to have these conversations um, with people who look like me uh, about, about what we have to gain from this, um, but at the same time, acknowledging and hearing and understanding people's real concerns um, and being patient about how, you know, it may not be a yes on Monday, but hey, you know, if we keep the dialogue open, maybe on Tuesday, it'll be a maybe and on Wednesday, it'll be a yes. Um, so I'm just optimistic that um, I hope our world will start to listen more to people historically ignored um, and that, you know, we will, and that this will impact health across the board, that we will start understanding that, you know, when a black person says, no, I don't want that, it's not just because of air quotes, untreated syphilis study. Mm -hmm. It is because maybe this individual reason that I have and allow us to get to a point of being informed and then respecting individuals enough um, to, to, to dig into why they consent or they refuse. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm optimistic about where this can leave us in terms of communication and respecting people who historically weren't respected um, after we get out of this. Dr. Kimberly Manny, Professor of Medicine and Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. She also treats patients at Grady Memorial Hospital. Dr. Manning, first of all, thank you to you and all of your colleagues and peers for the work you all been doing all this year. And then thank you for being a part of today's special program. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. And of course, always a chance to honor all the beautiful people at Grady, in Grady, around Grady, adjacent to Grady. It is um, where hope resides. So I'm excited that we're on the front of this. Thank you so much, Dr. Manning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too.
That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.